0: Welcome to Skim This. The midterm election results are coming in, and they're kind of a mixed bag. As we wait to see which party will control Congress, we're skimming our three biggest takeaways so far. Also on the show, we're taking things international and checking in on the major climate conference that's happening
1: in Egypt this week. This question of how much will wealthy countries pay developing ones to cope with the worst climate damages is one of the key questions where we could see some progress on this year.
0: And to wrap things up, we're talking about a big change to Thanksgiving dinner. Between supply shortages and inflation, turkey might be off your table this year. So we're asking a food writer about the best non-bird Thanksgiving dishes to add to your menu. We're here to make you smarter and the news less overwhelming. I'm Alex Carr. Let's skim this. Tuesday was election day, and there was a lot at stake. Control of both the Senate and the House were up for grabs, as were a number of high-profile state positions, from governorships to secretaries of state. Experts say this election cycle, voter turnout soared across the country. And some states, like Georgia, even set new records for early ballots cast. Now that Americans have hit the polls, it's our job to break down the results. So today, we're going to skim our three takeaways from the midterm elections. And to do that, we're going to need to take a look at where things stand right now. Currently, the major thing people had their eye on, control of Congress, is still TBD. So far, Republicans are narrowly ahead in the race to take the House. But with Democrats holding onto key seats and some races yet to be called, it's a much tighter election for the House than we expected. And over in the Senate, it's still up in the air which party will be the one in power. As of the time we published this Thursday night, some of the closest races still haven't been called, including in Arizona and Nevada. And in Georgia, the Senate race between Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker is actually headed for a runoff next month. Meaning it could be weeks until we've actually got an answer about who's in charge. So that's kind of where we're at, what's looking like a slim GOP majority in the House and a big old TBD in the Senate. And that brings us to our first takeaway from the midterms this year. Democrats didn't do as badly as people, even Democrats themselves, thought they would. Remember a few days ago when all we kept hearing about was red wave? wave.
2: Youngkin bragged about a quote, red wave. Does it feel like a red wave? Yeah, of course it does.
0: Obviously there's gonna be a red
3: wave. A modest red wave, at the very least, seems to be building.
0: We're expecting a potential GOP blowout because midterms are often seen as a referendum on the party in power. And with the economy top of mind for many voters, President Biden entered the midterms with low approval ratings. But that red wave didn't really happen. You might be thinking, wait a second, you just told me that Republicans are on track to win the House. And they are, but people were expecting Republicans to win it by more than a dozen seats, which isn't panning out as expected. Over in the Senate, Republicans faced tough challenges too. J.D. Vance, the Republican candidate for Ohio's Senate seat, won. But that race was closer than originally expected. And in Pennsylvania, the Democratic candidate John Fetterman actually defeated Dr. Mehmet Oz to fill and flip a key open Senate seat. Control of that chamber is still up in the air, but Republicans didn't sweep every close race. So why was the red wave more of a red ripple? Well, analysts are still looking into it, but some believe that the controversy around former President Donald Trump didn't help Republican candidates. And some also point out that as more young people voted in the midterms, that could have slowed a red wave, because according to one poll, young voters prefer Democrats by a 28-point margin. When it comes to how Republicans and Democrats did on the state level, many voters stuck with what they know. Texas re-elected Republican Governor Greg Abbott, Florida re-elected Republican Ron DeSantis, Georgia re-elected their Republican Governor Brian Kemp, while the New York and Michigan governor's mansions stayed blue. Speaking of state elections... Let's talk about our second takeaway from the midterms. Voters, when directly given the choice, voted to protect abortion rights.
4: In California, we are a true freedom state. We embrace the rights of women and girls.
1: We will make Michigan a leader, a place where women make their own decisions. Democrats across the country are celebrating sweeping wins for supporters of abortion rights.
0: As a reminder, abortion rights were actually on the ballot in five states. And people in California, Michigan, and Vermont voted in favor of adding abortion protections to their state constitutions. While in Kentucky, voters rejected an anti-abortion amendment. And in Montana, NBC News has confirmed that voters rejected a ballot measure that would make abortion illegal if the fetus showed any signs of life even in medical emergencies. As for what we can make of all of this, well, pro-abortion advocates say this is a positive sign that Americans care about and come out to vote for protecting abortion access. And it's also a signal for advocates and legislators that state constitutions are the best vehicle to protect abortion access. So we may see more states putting reproductive rights up to a direct vote in the future. Now, let's talk about our third key takeaway from the midterms. Americans didn't outright reject election deniers. A little context here. Hundreds of candidates who denied the 2020 election results ran for the House, Senate, and state positions this year. And while some of those candidates lost, like the Republican candidate for governor in Pennsylvania and the Republican candidate for Senate in New Hampshire— Americans didn't totally reject election deniers from holding office. In fact, election deniers actually won in the races for Senate in Ohio and Attorney General in Florida and Ohio. And other high-profile races involving election deniers still haven't been called, like the governor's race in Arizona, where Republican candidate Carrie Lake has become one of the most prominent election deniers running for office. As of the time we published this, we still don't know who won. And in Nevada, Jim Marchant, an election denier, is neck and neck with his opponent for Secretary of State. And that's actually a position that controls how elections are administered. The main takeaway here is that election deniers were handed some victories and will likely continue to run for office in the future. So that's one story we'll keep following. And we want to wrap up our election coverage by calling out some of the history-making moments from Tuesday. Massachusetts elected Democrat Maura Healey to become the first openly lesbian governor in US history. She'll also be the state's first female governor, with Republican Sarah Huckabee Sanders breaking that barrier in Arkansas. And Republican Katie Britt is on track to become the first female senator from Alabama. Maryland also elected the state's first black governor, and New Hampshire elected the country's first ever openly trans man in a state legislature. While down in Florida, voters elected the first Gen Z member of Congress. Man, I feel old. Okay, that was a lot of information, so let's take a break from politics. And as control of the Senate and the House hang in the balance, we'll keep you updated on this show. It's been a wild week in the world of tech.
1: We want to get to some breaking news here with Lyft.
4: 11,000 jobs have been cut at the social media giant Meta. Days after Elon Musk suddenly fired roughly half
3: the staff, the company has reached out to dozens of fired employees to ask
2: them back.
3: They've actually been asked to bring printouts, paper, of the last 30 days of the source code they've worked on for Twitter. It's
2: the biggest stock market drop for Airbnb since going public.
0: It seems like things in Silicon Valley are so chaotic that the writers of the TV show, Silicon Valley, probably couldn't have come up with this. So today, we're gonna skim the major changes at three of the biggest tech companies, Twitter, Meta, and Airbnb, and how they'll affect you in 60 seconds. Let's start with what's happening at Twitter. The social platform's proud new owner, Elon Musk, has made some serious changes since he took over two weeks ago. Last week, he laid off half of Twitter's staff, then said, my bad, and asked some of them to come back. Musk has also started to deregulate content and charge users for verification on the platform. And he's also apparently trying to crack down on impersonators, mainly of himself. This week, the company suspended accounts of people impersonating Musk, including comedians like Kathy Griffin and Mad Men actor Rich Sommer. So it seems like the new Twitter can't take a joke. As for how these changes will affect you, well, you might encounter a darker, less regulated platform. Hate speech has already been spiking on Twitter since the takeover. So much so that it's actually driven half a million users to check out a free open source decentralized social media platform called Mastodon. It's TBD if more users might migrate over, but considering we all just figured out Be Real and TikTok, you might see more people deactivating their accounts instead of switching them. Next up, let's check in on Meta, former screen name Facebook. On Wednesday, founder and CEO Mark Zuckerberg announced that the company would be laying off more than 11,000 employees, the most significant cuts in the company's history. And Meta's not the only one scaling back. Lyft and Stripe also recently announced cuts to their workforce. After growing so fast during the pandemic, big tech has had to hit the brakes, which has major consequences for tech employees. And considering more tech layoffs are expected, that'll bring more pain and heartache in the weeks to come. And that brings us to the third company we're checking in on, Airbnb. And luckily, we've got some good news here. Starting next month, the home rental platform is gonna try to curb the amount of surprise cleaning fees and service fees, and say goodbye to unreasonable or unexpected checkout requests, like hosts making people water plants, vacuum, strip beds, or feed their pet iguana. True story about that last one. These changes couldn't come soon enough for consumers ahead of the expensive holiday season. So if you're booking that last-minute getaway, consider this the gift you didn't know you needed. How'd we do? Want us to skim a question from the news? Send us your suggestions to audio at theskim.com. This week, world leaders and diplomats gathered in Sharm al-Sheikh, Egypt, for urgent climate talks. The conference, also known as COP27, is gathered annually by the United Nations. And it's an opportunity for countries to get real about climate change and talk about solutions to prevent rising global temperatures and climate disasters. This year, the stakes are high and the negotiations are tense. Here to help us break down what's going on in Egypt is Juliet Eilprin, the deputy editor for the Climate and Environment Department at The Washington Post. Juliet, can you set the scene for me around what COP27 even is and what these conferences are like?
1: This is the 27th time that most of the nations of the world have gathered to really assess where the globe is on its climate trajectory and what needs to be done about it. And these are massive, sprawling conferences where not only do government officials gather. Your Majesties, Heads of State, Excellencies, Ladies and Gentlemen, But you have protesters and activists. You refuse to answer questions. You're a public figure. Are you a climate knife? You have corporations that are trying to advocate for what they're doing to save the planet. At a climate summit at the Lamborghini Conference Centre. It's a fascinating collection who come together and debate... What needs to be done, and almost every year, to what extent the world is falling short of its pledges to address climate change.
0: What were the stakes and objectives heading into
1: COP27? They were pretty modest expectations of what's going to be accomplished, even though the stakes are very high. So to put it in context, roughly 30 years ago, the politicians of the world at that point had pledged to keep the globe from warming no more than two degrees Celsius, which is 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit. And this was considered what we needed to do to avert dangerous levels of global warming. What's happened since then is it's become clear that even at a lower temperature rise, we are facing massive damages from these impacts. And so in 2015, the world gathered at Paris for a very significant gathering of this conference of the parties, as they call it. And they said that they would limit warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. It is increasingly clear that we will miss this target. The planet has already warmed nearly 1.2 degrees C compared to pre-industrial levels, but the idea is to get as close to it as possible. And so what the goal is of this particular meeting is to essentially assess how nations can follow through on the promises they made last year, where they tried to be a little more ambitious in terms of what they were going to do, to curb planet warming emissions and to kind of put the building blocks in place so that we could avert disastrous climate change.
0: It seems like there's been a lot of focus on the dynamic between wealthier and developing countries at this conference. Can you talk to me about the difference between how wealthier and less wealthy nations can even approach these climate
1: conversations? There's a huge divide between the industrialized nations of the world and the developing ones. And that is central to what delegates are arguing about right now. So essentially, as all of these climate impacts are happening in real time, whether that's more intense storms that are causing major flooding, wildfires, drought, wealthier countries have the capacity to cope with many of these impacts. It doesn't mean that it's easy, it doesn't mean that it's cheap, but they have the resources to build the seawalls, to address some of these myriad of damages that we're seeing. However, when you look at less wealthy nations, they are facing debilitating impacts at this point. The floods in Pakistan is one of the clearest examples. Billions of dollars of damage, that have led to not only the loss of crops and how this nation can feed itself, but also it's prompted the spread of disease, including malaria, it's just tremendous. And this is a country that's struggling with debt. So what the developing nations are demanding right now is that wealthy ones pay for what's known as loss and damage, that they provide billions of dollars to help cope with these climate impacts. Historically, well-off nations, including the United States under Democratic and Republican presidents, have refused to do this. They have not wanted to be liable for these tremendous impacts, even though, of course, we have emitted a disproportionate amount of carbon dioxide that's warming the planet. So this question of how much will wealthy countries pay developing ones to cope with the worst climate damages is one of the key questions where we could see some progress on this year. And it seems
0: like coming out of this conference that some leaders of European countries have started to offer money around this loss and
1: damage, but the U.S. has not. Right. We have seen things like Denmark has come forward with a modest amount of money. French President Emmanuel Macron has argued that the Europeans have stepped up and are offering some money on this front, but that it is really the U.S. and China, the world's biggest historic emitter and the world's current largest emitter, they are the ones who need to offer more resources.
0: Do you think that we'll see more of that, the burden of the climate falling on poor countries to fix, even when it's the wealthier
1: countries who are responsible?
0: And then how does that dynamic change?
1: To some extent, what you have seen in the past and will continue to see is that wealthy nations are going to have an incentive to finance renewable energy projects, clean energy projects in the developing world. They do this, for example, to meet their own climate targets, especially that's why you see the Europeans stepping up. And in fact, what we're seeing right now is the United States is joining with philanthropies and private corporations to try to develop what they call a clean energy accelerator, a voluntary carbon trading market where you will have these private actors paying money to try to finance these projects. Frankly, when you cut emissions anywhere in the world, it helps the atmosphere. So to some extent, there is a logic when it comes to financing it. But it is true that the dilemma we face right now is that As these developing nations grow and their citizens are demanding some of the things we take for granted, whether it's a car or a larger home, things like that, their energy use is expanding. That becomes a question of how do you decarbonize quickly enough that their economic growth will not add to the pollution burden that we face globally.
0: I'm curious what has come out of this summit around holding companies accountable. And is there anything governments are going to do or try to do to help businesses reduce their impact on the climate?
1: That's an excellent question. Part of the challenge we face with this process that's done under the United Nations is that they don't have authority or jurisdictions over corporations. And in fact, you really do have a gray area where corporations make pledges And then it really is up to civil society and the media to scrutinize them. We published a story recently about looking at airline emissions and Delta Airlines, which has very ambitious promises, but actually was buying carbon offsets at a very low price in a way that really essentially does not represent true carbon cuts the way that they claim on the napkins that they give you with your drink when you're flying on on that airline. And so I think what you're going to see is a push for greater accountability. We are seeing this in the Biden administration where they are demanding greater disclosure and will be doing greater oversight. One of the issues there is that Republicans have questioned this move. And it seems clear that, for example, if Republicans control at least one chamber, the House of Representatives, they will be pushing back as the administration demands greater accountability from companies.
0: I think the thing that's been hanging over this summit is that there's just criticism that COP doesn't work. I guess from your perspective, do you agree? And what will it take to kind of change the summit to get more done?
1: It's a good question. As a journalist, I'm not going to comment on, you know, to what extent I agree with that criticism. I will say, certainly having covered it many times in the past, it is clear that it doesn't have the kind of enforcement power that many people would say is required to follow through. And it's a messy process by definition. That said, what is interesting is it is one of these moments that happens once a year where the world's eyes are focused on this problem and where the uncomfortable facts that people often avoid in their everyday lives are on full display and where people from developing countries have a voice in a way that they don't any other time of year. Juliet, thank you so much. Thank you, Alex. I appreciate it.
0: It's no secret that the way we work has changed a lot over the last few years. For us at The Skim, it's meant adapting to a hybrid setup and finding new ways to communicate across different teams and time zones. Through it all, Slack has helped us preserve our company culture and get stuff done. We think of it as our digital HQ. And we've teamed up with Slack to give you a peek behind the curtain, by sharing real stories from real SkimHQers about some of our most used and most loved Slack channels. So far, we've talked about how we share audience feedback and how managers connect in Slack. Today, we're talking about the Headline Workshop channel, which is where the editorial team comes to collaborate on one of the most important parts of any article. You guessed it, the headline. So to kick us off, I'm going to jump in a huddle with someone who spends a lot of time in this channel. Alicia, hey, first question for you. Can you just introduce yourself and tell us how this channel was born?
2: My name is Alicia Balensky and I am the senior SEO editor at The Skim. So we hosted a workshop back in March, basically trying to teach our entire editorial team how to maximize the clickability of their headlines. So we went through that workshop, we gave all of our best tips, and then the action item was to start a Slack channel where we could all begin workshopping our headlines together to get the most out of them. Being able to lean on people who are looking at a problem very differently from the way that you're looking at the problem and can come up with those fresh solutions is really, really helpful. From the time that we started this channel in March to now, our homepage click-through rate has increased by 93%, which is insane. Double the amount of people are clicking through to our articles because we've implemented this process that we're optimizing our headlines to get them really excited about clicking through to the content that we're creating.
0: Can you just talk to me a little bit about some of the Slack features you use in this channel? I think that the emoji functionality has been really, really
2: helpful. It's nice to be able to almost vote on the headline options. It makes it really easy to kind of see, okay, 10 people reacted to that one. Only three reacted to
0: the other one. Let's go with the one that 10 people reacted to. I also spoke with another coworker about how they use this channel to be more efficient.
3: My name is Maria Corpus, and I am a senior writer for The Skim. For any given article, we usually have at least three headlines to write. And I think for a lot of us, we reach a certain point where we're kind of just like out of ideas. We really need some, you know, fresh takes and perspectives. So instead of just wasting time thinking, oh, I really don't know what to write. (laughs) It was just a great resource to just go in there and kind of put out a PSA, a call to action. Like, hey, I'm working on this article. This is what I have. What can we do? And then I could grab some ideas from that channel my editor was usually always in there and also providing feedback and it really saved some time from my perspective.
0: Okay, question for both of you here, Alicia, Maria, what's your favorite Slack feature? I love the Google
2: Calendar app integration. It lets me know at the beginning of my day, here's what's on your docket. And then 10 minutes and one minute before every meeting I have. So the fact that I get a notification from Slack that's like, you have a meeting in one minute. I'm like, (laughs) oh my God, great. I should stop doing this. I should hop into that meeting. I love the huddle feature.
3: When collaborating with other writers on other teams, it's just an easier way to communicate, especially when we're fact-checking for hours, just hopping on a huddle rather than sending 10 15 Slack messages, it's way easier. And I I really enjoy that feature. And the audio, it's super clear. But yeah, huddle all the way.
0: I totally agree. Alicia and Maria, thank you so much. Next week, we're talking to someone on the team who's balancing her job as a mom and her job at the skim about our Slack channel made just for working parents. Because our digital HQ isn't only about getting work done. It's about connecting with our coworkers, too. It might not be a rogue COVID infection that changes your plans for Thanksgiving this year. Avian influenza, a.k.a. bird flu, could actually be the disease that forces you to pivot this holiday season. According to a new report from the USDA, the price of a mid-sized turkey is up almost from this time last year. And yeah, part of that is inflation, but a larger part of it is a turkey shortage caused by an outbreak. So, turkey lovers, you're gonna have to pay a premium to get that bird in the oven. But where some people might see a turkey sized hole in the Thanksgiving menu, Becky Crystal sees lots of possibilities. I always think
4: that there's an opportunity to branch out. I think people put too much emphasis on the turkey and it's probably overcooked or they're unevenly cooked. You get dry, especially white meat. So I say leave it behind.
0: Crystal's a staff writer for Voraciously, and she's here to save Thanksgiving dinner with a couple of non-bird options for us. To start, let's take a look at another meat option that'll still be a hit with your family from out of town.
4: Right now, I'm really loving the appeal of this recipe from Ellie Krieger, roasted pork tenderloin with apples, shallots, and spinach. Basically, you have this warm salad with the roasted shallots and apples. They get a little bit of a balsamic glaze, and you separately cook a pork tenderloin and you put it all together on the table and you drizzle it with more of a dressing or glaze. You get these lovely slices, you sear one side so it's kind of brown on top and you just fan it out across this colorful seasonal salad. I would put it in the middle of the table for sure.
0: You could also take this as your chance to go meatless with the main dish and wow your guests with something plant-based. This recipe that food editor Joe
4: Yonan published last year is a lentil and pecan stuffed acorn squash. You have these acorn squash and then you fill them with a mixture of lentils and pecans and it's spiced. And of course, a lot of the herbs and aromatics that we sort of associate with this time of year There's cider, which always makes a lovely addition to any fall meal. There's orange juice and orange zest. And you have these sort of fried crispy sage leaves on top. So it's definitely a looker. People who are eating a meat dish, this could be a side for them, but it would also be a really gorgeous main course for people who aren't eating meat.
0: And we've got one more option if you're looking to ditch turkey. And this is definitely something I can get behind. Make your meal all about the sides. Most of the
4: time, my plate looks something like maybe there's one or two little slices of turkey. And then we tend to have a lot of the expected side dishes that I don't eat any other time of year. So I don't mind. I would love actually making a meal out of them. You could just put out a bunch of sides and not even announce it's a size meal. Just put out a big spread, and that's the really fun stuff that people like playing around with. Obviously, stuffing, you know.
0: And Crystal says, don't worry about following any sort of tradition, especially when it's not your vibe. Like, if you think sweet potatoes and marshmallows have no business being in a dish together, scrap it. Anything you put on your table on
4: Thanksgiving is a Thanksgiving meal. It's nice to have those flavors if you like them, if it reminds you of this time of year, if it's what's available at the market, if you want something lighter and brighter, make dishes you feel comfortable
0: with. And one more tip. Don't forget to take it easy as you head into Turkey Day, cause you know what they say about too many cooks in the kitchen.
4: You can always order a pizza. Things go awry. It's okay. There's always a backup, no matter what it is. I know you're getting together with people you might not see, but it's one dinner. There's always next year. There's always the opportunity for a good story, if nothing else. It's dinner. You'll be okay.
0: Thanks for listening to Skim This. This podcast was skimmed by me, Alex Carr, along with our producer, Will Livingston, and our associate producer, Blake Lou Merwin. We had additional help this week from Alicia Key. This episode was engineered by Ellie McAfee-Hahn and Andrew Calloway, and the Skim's head of audio is Graylin Brashear. Skim This will be back in your feet again next week. Until then, check out the Skim's other podcast. It's called 9 to 5-ish, and it's where we talk all things career with our founders, Carly and Danielle. You can find it wherever you're already listening to us.